You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 178 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. So far we've looked at what happened on the first and second days of the Second Battle of Manassas. And with this show we'll look at action on the third day. As you guys will recall, the brutal fight at Bronner's Farm on the evening of Thursday, August 28th, 1862 is generally considered the opening round of the battle. Then with the last show, we looked at the repeated Union attacks on Stonewall Jackson's line, which took place on the second day of the battle, that is on Friday, August 29th. Also on Friday, Longstreet's wing of the Confederate Army arrived and took up position on Jackson's right. And so now, as Tracy said, we're ready to look at the action on the third and final day of the battle, Saturday, August 30th, when Longstreet launched his devastating attack against the Federal left. Before we get to that, though, we want to take a minute to look at what George McClellan was up to during this time. We last left Little Mac on August 27th, and he was in Alexandria, just across the Potomac River from Washington. McClellan's troops had been arriving from the peninsula and were being forwarded to John Pope, so Little Mac found that he was no longer in command of the Army of the Potomac as such, but only those parts of the army that remained in the vicinity of Washington. John Pope at that time was still groping for Stonewall Jackson across northern Virginia, and one of Pope's frustrations besides being unable to pin down Stonewall, was the continued absence of William Franklin's and Edwin Sumner's corps from the Army of the Potomac. Fitzjohn Porter's and Samuel Heinzelman's corps had already reached Pope, while Franklin's was ready to march, and Sumner's would soon be ready. But then, as you guys will recall, after the disaster that took place on August 27th at the Bull Run Bridge involving Taylor's New Jersey Brigade, McClellan canceled Franklin's marching orders. No more troops should be forwarded to Pope, Little Mac told Henry Halleck, until they could be fully outfitted with artillery and cavalry. Over the next two days, McClellan led Halleck through a tortuous correspondence that left Little Mac, Halleck, and the Lincoln administration frustrated and irritated. Despite three specific orders to McClellan during that time span, Franklin's corps did not move to the front to help Pope. Finally, Halleck extracted a promise from Little Mac that Franklin would march on the morning of August 29th. Franklin did march on the morning of the 29th, but with obvious slowness and caution. 
and McClellan did nothing to discourage Franklin's lack of urgency. Franklin would barely march ten miles on the 29th, and on August 30th he would do only slightly better, twelve miles, getting to Centerville, just east of the Bull Run battlefield. The other corps under McClellan's control, Edwin Sumner's, was the object of less argument and controversy. That's because Sumner's corps was the last formation in the Army of the Potomac to arrive at Alexandria on August 28th. Little Mac immediately decided to use Sumner's men to defend the approaches to Washington, and Halleck agreed to this. Sumner would remain in and around the capital until the afternoon of August 30th, when he started towards Centerville. He would arrive there on the 31st. In his book, Return to Bull Run, John Hennessy writes that McClellan's caution and obstinacy during this time was vintage Little Mac and shouldn't have surprised anyone. But the air of treachery that has hung over McClellan's performance here stemmed not so much from his actions, but from the appalling attitude that accompanied them. Little Mac's own words condemn him. His concern was for the restoration of his unchallenged status as the general in charge of the Union forces in Virginia. As Hennessy points out, McClellan's selfish bitterness oozes from his correspondence during this time. Hennessy admits that American military history includes few streams of correspondence that are more disturbing than McClellan's near glee at the thought of John Pope's defeat on the battlefield and Little Mac's single-minded determination to reclaim overall command. But Hennessy maintains that although McClellan's performance contributed to Pope's troubles, Little Mac wasn't being any slower or more, more cautious than usual, and so during the second Manassas campaign, he was merely true to character. Hennessy says that it wasn't that McClellan actively schemed to see Pope destroyed, but rather that McClellan was just being McClellan. That seems a bit like splitting hairs to us, and there were plenty of McClellan's contemporaries, as well as a small army of historians since, who have seen treachery in Little Mac's attitude and performance here during the Second Manassas Campaign. Abraham Lincoln reacted with anger to McClellan's August 29th suggestion to, quote, leave Pope to get out of his scrape, end quote. According to one of the president's secretaries, it appeared to Lincoln that McClellan, quote, wanted Pope defeated, end quote. Saturday, 30th August, the morning broke upon the Confederates brightly, finding them in position of night before. Not a ripple broke the quiet of the dawn, and all was still as death. Not a shot. Not a sound broke the stillness of the morning, and many thought that the enemy had fallen back. Our brigade enjoyed corn from the neighboring fields, and potatoes and other vegetables in plenty, which was a great treat. Many of the men strayed off a mile to gather corn. About noon, the sound of moving artillery was heard on the enemy's side, and clouds of dust arose at several points on their line, showing that a move was going on, either forward or backward. We had not long to wait. The sounds came nearer, and then a shot, and the bursting of a shell gave us notice that our lines were about to be attacked. Sergeant George N. Wise, 17th Virginia Infantry, Corsage Brigade. In regard to my being rash and going out so far that day, I wish to say a few words. I have always made it my intention to do everything the general has told me to do, 
and not come back and tell him that I could not find anyone I was sent for or do anything I was sent to do. So this time I did not want to come back and say I couldn't find the units in question. The position of some of our troops and of the enemy's batteries confused me and made me go out too far. I will try to give you the position of our forces on the second Bull Run field. To the left was where the enemy had a battery placed during the day that fired at us and finally withdrew, leaving only two pieces there. We advanced from the hills and went across the plain into the woods. The enemy had a strong force in the woods and in the railroad gap in which they were posted. We tried to advance from the woods across the railroad gap and were repulsed by a terrible fire of grape, canister, and musketry, which mowed down the men like sheep. They had their batteries posted along the edge of the woods and brought a crossfire on us. The railroad gap served as a breastwork for them. Lieutenant Stephen M. Weld, Staff, Major General Fitzjohn Porter. At 3 a.m. on Saturday morning, the last of James Longstreet's troops arrived on the battlefield. They were the 6,100 men of Richard H. Anderson's division, plus the 18 guns of Colonel Stephen D. Lee's artillery battalion. After a grueling 17-hour march, they were last to arrive here because they had been the Confederate Army's rear guard along the old Rappahannock line. The artillery occupied a prominent knoll on the Bronner Farm providing much-needed firepower on Stonewall Jackson's right flank. Meanwhile, Anderson's tired infantry, uncertain of their whereabouts in the darkness, marched a considerable distance toward the Federal lines before being recalled and taking up position in the Confederate line in the Bronner Woods near Groveton just before sunrise on Saturday morning. That confused marching of Anderson's men in the darkness served an unintended purpose because when John Pope was informed of the retrograde movement by the enemy, it just served to reinforce his mistaken belief that the rebels were preparing to withdraw from the battlefield. It really has to be said that, even before this, the appearance of large numbers of Confederates on Friday along and south of the Warrenton Turnpike ought to have encouraged John Pope to ask an entirely new set of questions regarding the rebels and their intentions. But Pope apparently spent little time pondering the potential significance of this development on his left flank. On Saturday morning, the Federals launched several probes and reconnaissances along the line that encountered stiff resistance. Nevertheless, Pope chose to interpret the Confederate response as a mere rear-guard action, and he refused to give up his cherished idea that the enemy was fleeing. And so at noon, he ordered a two-pronged pursuit by Fitzjohn Porter and James Ricketts against what he believed to be a retreating enemy. That advance had barely begun, though, before rebel artillery fire stopped the Yankees in their tracks. Frustrated by this setback, Pope determined to launch an all-out assault by Porter's V Corps and John P. Hatch's division, aimed at the right side of Stonewall Jackson's line. By sheer weight of numbers, Pope hoped to smash away through the stubborn defenders of the unfinished railroad line, then exploit the breakthrough with all the forces he had on hand. Once it became apparent that Jackson and Longstreet were not withdrawing from the battlefield, but that they were instead staying and fighting, 
It's hard to justify John Pope's bullheaded determination to continue attacking on Saturday. His army didn't have a compelling advantage in either ground or numbers. And the immediate objective of the campaign for the Federals, the linking up of the Army of Virginia and the Army of the Potomac, could have been achieved by a simple withdrawal by Pope behind Bull Run to the defenses of nearby Centerville. From there, the combined Union armies could have moved forward again to battle the Confederates. But Pope would consider none of this. And preoccupied as he was with his plans for the big assault, Pope was in no mood to listen when John Reynolds, the extremely capable commander of the Division of Pennsylvania Reserves, rode up to headquarters with dire warnings of a massive rebel presence opposite the Federal left. Reynolds requested reinforcements, but only a brigade of infantry and a battery of artillery were sent to join him south of the Warrington Turnpike, atop an open stretch of high ground called Chin Ridge. That meant that on the Union left, just 8,000 Federals were facing Longstreet's 25,000 Confederates. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In the meantime, Robert E. Lee started off Saturday by debating precisely how to seize the tactical initiative from John Pope. If Pope allowed Saturday to pass relatively quietly, then that night Lee wanted to send Stonewall on a sweeping maneuver to the north around the Union right flank. But at 3 p.m. on Saturday afternoon, Lee's decision was made for him when the 10,000 Federal soldiers of Porter and Hatch emerged with a cheer from the woods north of Groveton. With bayonets fixed and flags flying, they headed toward Stonewall Jackson's line. Fitzjohn Porter had massed his units in compact columns, many ranks deep, which deployed into lines of battle as the attackers came out into the open fields west of the Groveton Woods. Brigadier General Daniel Butterfield led his troops forward on the left, while Hatch swung his division into action on the right. Porter held Brigadier General George Sykes' division of regular army troops in reserve, 
ready to follow up the initial initial assault. But unfortunately for Porter, Franz Siegel's corps in line atop Dogen Ridge, a half mile from the front, was too far in the rear to offer any immediate support should the attack not go according to plan. Porter's charging Union troops ran into difficulty as soon as they emerged from the woods. All day long, S.D. Lee's Confederate artillery had been harassing Porter's men from their commanding position on the high ground on Bronner's farm, and now Lee's 18 guns had a target they couldn't miss. With Jackson's artillery joining in on their left, Lee's gunners raked the Yankee formations with shot and shell, tearing gaps through the oncoming enemy ranks. As the attackers pushed across the little stream called Schoolhouse Branch, the Confederate infantry opened fire from the grade of the unfinished railroad. The brunt of the Federal assault fell on William Stark's division, which lay along the railroad in two lines of battle. One hunkered down behind the embankment, and one to the rear in reserve. Bradley Johnson's Virginia Brigade defended a stretch of the unfinished railroad line that sliced through Stony Ridge to form the so-called Deep Cut, while Colonel Leroy A. Stafford's Louisiana regiments defended a section known as the Dump on Johnson's left. Stafford's men blasted the oncoming Yankees, but couldn't prevent some of Hatch's troops from gaining a foothold on the embankment. As two New York regiments from Colonel Timothy Sullivan's brigade battled Stafford's Louisianans at point-blank range, a number of Butterfield's units managed to fight their way alongside them on their left. Johnson and Stafford committed their reserves and called on Jackson for reinforcements. The Stonewall Brigade, now down to fewer than 500 men, started forward but was driven back with the loss of their commanding officer, Colonel William Baylor. Under Jackson's stern eye, the Virginians rallied and succeeded in plugging a widening gap in the embattled rebel line. For nearly an hour, the opposing troops grappled along the unfinished railroad, with neither side willing to withdraw from the bitter contest. At one point, some of the desperate Confederate soldiers, with their ammunition exhausted, resorted to throwing rocks at the attacking Yankees. The Federals had encountered such unorthodox tactics before, and slightly discombobulated by it, some simply picked up the stones and threw them right back. This stone-throwing, stone-throwing duel would become one of the most famous episodes of the battle. When Alexander Lawton and A.P. Hill shifted units to bolster Stark's line, the tide began to turn in favor of the embattled Confederate defenders. The open ground behind the Federal attackers was raked and torn by rebel shell fire, and no Union troops were able to pass through the ordeal without demoralizing loss. Unable to blunt the rebel counterattacks with reinforcements of his own, Fitzjohn Porter could only watch as the survivors from his battered units began falling back from their hard-won positions along the line of the unfinished railroad, losing still more men as they retreated back across the shell-torn fields. With Porter and Hatch continuing to withdraw toward Franz Siegel's position back on Dogan's Ridge, Irvin McDowell made a fateful decision. Acting in his capacity as commander of Pope's left wing, McDowell ordered John Reynolds to march north from Chin Ridge across the Warrenton Turnpike to bolster the seemingly crumbling Federal Center. But with Reynolds' departure, only two small brigades of Union troops, some 2,200 men, remained to face Longstreet's five divisions of Confederates. With the failure of Fitzjohn Porter's assault, 
Robert E. Lee and James Longstreet knew that the decisive moment of the battle had come, and at 4 p.m., from the woods and fields west and southwest of the Warrenton Turnpike, Old Pete's 25,000 troops swept down on John Pope's oh-so-vulnerable left flank. The Yanks were in a piece of pine woods. Our skirmishers were forced forward as far as they could go and brought to a standstill. General Hood passed word down the line that when he gave the order to charge, he wanted the whole line to charge, and the Yanks heard the order to charge, but I think misunderstood it, thinking the order was for the skirmishers only, and instead our whole line charged, and we ran right on top of them, and there we met the Red Breeches Zouaves and had a hand-to-hand fight, shooting them down at the point of the gun. They retreated across a small stream, and that was just full of dead and dying Yankees. It was pitiful to hear the poor devils crying from pain, and some drowning, mortally wounded, and unable to get out. Terrible, terrible to be placed in this predicament. Just as I ascended the hill on the other side of the stream, I was shot in the face, just below my nose on the right side. Fortunately, it did not penetrate very deep. The ball glanced from the cheekbone, knocked me down, however, and bled a great deal. Sergeant Thomas C. Albergati, Hampton Legion, Hood's Brigade. It was not long before a company of skirmishers came in, all much excited, huddled together in a heap, and much scared, and said that the enemy were coming and were right on top of us, on the left flank. But before any orders could be given to change position, the balls began to fly through the woods like hail. It was a continual hiss, snap, whiz, and slug. Private Brady, who used to live opposite us in Lexington Avenue, in the wooden house, was the first one hit. He stood a few files from me. He fell without saying a word, struck in the body. He was dragged a few paces to the rear to be out of our way by our lieutenant. He died there. The rebels' fire was now murderous, our men falling on all sides. The tenth had already broken and were flying to the rear. We had not fired more than two rounds before they were in front and flank, their object being to surround us. The order had been given to retreat, but we did not hear the order. Then the whole regiment broke and ran for their lives. The rebels were after us with their yells, meant to represent an Indian war whoop. They were Mississippi and Texan riflemen and were six to one of us. They were in their shirt sleeves and came charging on, yelling for Jeff Davis and the Confederacy. There was no hope but in flight, no thought of stopping to save a man. All the time they were pouring in their deadly shots at short range, picking out their men. While running down the hill towards the small stream at its foot, I saw the men dropping on all sides. It was a perfect hail of bullets. I was expecting to get it every second, but on I went, the balls hissing by my head. I felt one strike me on the hip just grazing me and only cutting a hole in my pants. I turned around to look behind once and only once. That was enough to let me know there was not time to stop. I saw two or three rebel officers on horseback, their swords drawn and waving their men on. It occurred to me to turn and fire on them, but as quickly decided that it was folly, as I could not stop long enough to take any kind of aim, and I would become a mark for a score of rifles, so I kept on. Private Alfred Davenport, 5th New York Infantry, Warren's Brigade.
With the failure of Porter's attack, both Lee and Longstreet knew that if they were to destroy John Pope's army, they would surely never have a better opportunity than this. But as orders were quickly dispatched to his division and brigade commanders for the assault, Longstreet realized the task before him was both appealing and challenging. Old Pete clearly recognized his opportunity to completely smash the Union left, and to accomplish this, he picked Henry Hill as his objective. If his men could capture that hill, he would dominate the federal line of retreat along the Warrenton Turnpike, and thus be in in an excellent position from which to destroy Pope's army. But Longstreet knew that smashing the Union left would not be easy. With only three hours of daylight remaining, the Confederate attack had to be launched quickly. Nevertheless, Longstreet knew that even if he got his troops moving immediately, that is by 4 p.m., victory would still compete with darkness for control of the battlefield. Longstreet also knew little of the strength and position of any Yankees who might bar the rebels' path to Henry Hill. Longstreet realized that this and the disappearing daylight would be the wild cards that would help determine the outcome of the Confederate attack. Getting his five divisions to converge simultaneously on Henry Hill would be like herding cats and would prove to be Longstreet's biggest problem. That he would not be able to solve it, given the coordination and command and control problems inherent on Civil War battlefields, would rob his attack of much of its potential power. Initially, Longstreet's front would cover more than one and a half miles, from near the Bronner House on his left to beyond the Manassas Gap Railroad on his right. The left of Longstreet's line, near the Warrenton Turnpike, would have to cover just over a mile and a half to reach Henry Hill. The intervening ground, just south of the turnpike, was rolling and uneven, cut by a stream known as Young's Branch, and also by two lesser streams. The most imposing feature between Longstreet's left and Henry Hill was Chin Ridge. On Longstreet's right, the division there, commanded by David R. Jones, would have to advance more than two miles to reach Henry Hill. The ground in front of Jones was covered by numerous woods and innumerable fences, all of which would surely slow his assault. Those obstacles and the additional distance, not to mention any Yankees who might stand in the way, virtually assured that Longstreet's right would be unable to keep pace with his left. Longstreet chose John B. Hood's division on the left to lead the attack. Spearheading the assault would be the five regiments of Hood's Old Texas Brigade. James L. Kemper's division would advance on Hood's right. Kemper was commanding a division in battle for the first time, having replaced George Pickett, who was still recovering from a wound suffered during the seven days. To Richard Anderson's division, Lee and Longstreet gave the task of supporting Hood and exploiting any advantage gained. Cadmus Wilcox's division would maintain Longstreet's link with Stonewall Jackson's wing. Shortly after 4 p.m., John B. Hood's division of rebels, astride the Warrenton Turnpike, charged forward with the Texas Brigade in the lead. They collided with the two regiments of Federals, the 5th and 10th New York, barely a thousand Yankees commanded by Colonel Governor K. Warren. Two hours earlier, Warren had moved his troops alongside Lieutenant Charles E. Hazlitt's battery, partially filling the gap Reynolds had left when he retired to Chen Ridge. 
Now, Haslip managed to get his guns away as Hood's hard-charging Confederates swarmed forward, but in less than ten minutes, Warren's brigade was virtually annihilated. The tail end of Reynolds' division, as it changed position, had yet to cross over the Warrenton Turnpike when Longstreet struck. Those Yankee troops were also shattered and put to flight. Screaming the rebel yell, the Texas Brigade overran the guns of Captain Mark Kern's Pennsylvania battery and surged on, headed for Chin Ridge. Longstreet's onslaught appeared unstoppable, and a Union disaster seemed imminent. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Summer Lightning, A Guide to the Second Battle of Manassas by Matt Spruill III and Matt Spruill IV. In Summer Lightning, the Spruills use selections from official battlefield reports by the combatants, their own analysis and battle narrative, and combined with tactical maps to give you a guide to have in hand as you tour the battlefield. Using the book, the Second Manassas Battlefield is broken up into a series of 20 stops that will take you through the action that took place during the battle. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We want to wrap up this show by saying thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Conan, Stephen, and Tom. And a big thank you also to Stephen in the UK, Lionel in Louisiana, and David in Illinois for their donations to the podcast. Those are always much appreciated. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next time when we wrap up our look at the action at the Second Battle of Manassas. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.